Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and a very warm welcome to Under the Radar today. Our special guest that we are sitting down with is Dr. Aslam Ismail. He is a resident of Benoni retail expert and he has a PhD in business philosophy. And what we're doing today is going through a walk in the park. Uh, that's not just a phrase, but it is the title of his uh, very interesting book, A Journey of Retail Transformation as Experienced by South African Retailers. I'd like to welcome him to Radio Islam. Uh, Brother Aslam, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome. Wa alaikum salam and uh, thank you for being here. Uh, shukran so much for, for hosting us. Uh, before we can dive into the contents of this book, uh, just a bit about yourself, uh, your personal, your professional background and interests. I think you did a great introduction. Uh, born and bred uh, in a little town called Actonville. For those of you who don't know where Actonville is, it's a suburban Benoni. Um, managed to schools in the area. A bustling community, I must say, alhamdulillah, rich in culture, rich with character. Also started propagating the issues about integrated living in a multicultural society. So it was great grooming. After matriculating, I uh, studied in Durban, uh, returned back home, uh, managed to get a job with a clothing retailer. Um, that didn't last too much because it was that recessionary, too long I mean, it was the recessionary period. Post-recession I joined the family business uh, and I realized that uh, that's not the future that I envisage. I was fortunate to then be incorporated as a graduate, in a graduate trainee program with a multinational corporate retailer and uh, through the world and fiddle of Allah I've been there for about 32 years now. Um, because of the international travels and a lot of time that I used to spend alone, and I have this natural inclination to reflecting and writing down my thoughts, uh, I then completed a PhD, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, it deals with transformation management, and yes, it is uh, philosophy-based. I want you to just uh, pry at that for us a bit. I mean, f philosophy conjures up all kinds of thoughts in, in people's minds. So business philosophy, what exactly is that? So let me just talk about philosophy in broad. Philosophy, uh, you know, is basically a desire to understand who you are and what's your fit in the bigger scheme uh, of, of systems and we talk about the world and the larger world that we live in. Um, let's zone that down. Uh, business philosophy in this case would mean understanding what's happening in the business environment, the business world, and probably having a niche interest in one area or sector of a particular business environment, exploring that, realizing what, you know, what benefits could be shared, confirmed, and discussed uh, in the broader context of, uh, of of business. Now tell us about the kind of day-to-day -day things that you do in the retail sector and then how does that channel itself or funnel itself towards your motivation for this book? So I was basically, uh, you know, uh, categorized as an operations executive on a national basis. 
I then had the opportunity to work directly in the UK market with a company called ESDA, uh, and then Walmart in the US. Uh, and those of you who know Walmart as a retail entity, it's rather a giant uh, in this industry. Uh, and you know, uh, they've got businesses uh, proliferated all over the world, uh, with the exception of Russia, as I can recall. So uh, it allowed me to start having, and you hear this term very often in the business circles, a helicopter view of what the retail industry um, is experiencing. And when you reflect on the South African retail market, particularly in the early 90s, uh, right up to about the 2010-2012, you'll find that we experience I would say high velocity transformation. Uh, and the transformation was mostly imposed. Uh, as South Africans, we have short memories of the social political transformation that's taken place, the impact that it had in business in particular. And because retail is customer fronting, customer facing, uh, you know, you cannot escape the dialogue, the conversations, the appeasement of the customer, and more importantly, the accommodation of customers, both from a socially correct perspective and also from a legislative perspective. I'm not going to delve into the laws that push those transformation, but one great one that we should be considering is the impact of BEE in our psyche, in our operational day-to-day -day, uh, uh, methodologies, and also in the interface we started having between the people that we employ, our associates, and the customers that we serve. Uh, you would fondly remember that there was explosion of rights. Uh, not only in general to the previously disadvantaged communities, but if you looked at the sectarian base of our population, a large percentage of those population uh, or customers that we serve were previously disadvantaged people. So within a month or three, they start walking into your business with expectations of being treated differently and rightfully so, all right? And some of them had a fabricated view of what the human rights would mean and therefore imposed a lot of, you know, uh, unnecessary demands, etc. It, it was the responsibility of retailers to correctly manage those situations. So we had to go onto a steep learning curve of educating and informing our teams our people that interface with customers, what exactly that would mean and what type of desired behaviors we would advocate as leadership in retail. So I went round about in terms of answering your question. What I basically do is understand uh, what the continuity vector is from a business point perspective um, uh, for the company that I work for and I look at what we then would call resilience management. What are the issues that impede business performance, It would strike at its normal day-to-day -day functionality and would disrupt its operation? That's what I do for the organization. And then coming to, to the book, uh, very much uh, a summary of those kind of ideas that you've uh, conveyed to us now? Yes, uh, alhamdulillah. The book took me some 18 months to actually pin. And the difficulties, particularly for people who want to write a book, is to, is to remain focused. Now, you know, with 30 odd some, 30 some odd years experience in the retail industry, having to write about a particular retail subject was rather challenging for me. So I looked at the impact of transformation in the book. 
And it, the book is actually an accolade to South African retailers. And because the world viewed South Africa as a gateway into Africa, I really explored the philosophy of how business leaders and, 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 and I grouped them into uh, the various leading retailers in, in the South African context managed particular scenarios. Um, and we took the learnings from that. So, you know, we looked at what the, the technological implications were, what was the implications of a volatile social-political environment, uh, you know, again, the aggressive transitioning of laws, regulations, particularly, particularly for a retail industry or for business in particular. And then our customers that travel abroad eventually came back with an expectation of what retail should look like and what type of service they should demand and what type of product categorizations they should have. Um, and due to the you know, population refinement or what I say remodeling in the South African environment, i.e. I talk about the influx of a lot of people, a great example, different people other than just South Africans. I'll give you an example where prior to 1990, uh, selling pasta, um, you know, was, uh, was not a key consideration. But with the development of the population uh, with multicultural representation, there was a demand, uh, you know, un uh, unnatural demand for us as retailers than for pasta, which we needed to accommodate. And that's a bit of a small example of how retailers had to constantly adapt. But let's talk about a technological environment, particularly for people that traveled overseas. You know, they went and all of a sudden they're interfacing with a cardless pay system or they're interfacing with a self-checkout. For those of you who don't know, you pay the products, you go to a point of sale and you process your own products, pay for it and walk out. And they can return to South Africa with the same expectations. We as retailers had to go slow. We had to research base our the, the need and obviously, uh, the, whether the investment had a return uh, from both a customer appeasement point of view and also from a business investment point of view. So, South African retailers need to be acknowledged for the way they conglomerated. Yes, they have sat around tables with their company identity and their company hats, uh, whether it be Spa, Woolworths, Messmart you know, pick and pay checkers. And collectively, they sat together and dealt with issues facing the retail industry. Since the 1980s, there's been several national uh, uh, retail organizations that have developed um, uh, to, to perform certain services. Some of them have evolved into national business organizations. Some looking at crime, some are looking at the technology, some are looking at a customer face interfacing, and a lot of them looking at the legal implications of laws that are transitioning within the government. So it's actually a uh, multifaceted discussion on technology enhancement, uh, process uh, reprocess reengineering, uh, you know, online customer. Uh, satisfaction, supply chain management, uh, you know, in-stock situational management, and most importantly, uh, uh, satisfying consumer requirements and consumer behaviors. 
Brother Islam, I have a copy of the, your, your book in front of me, which you've uh, kindly gifted to me. But looking at the design, uh, it, it kind of gives a good idea of the approach that you take in the book, because uh, obviously the title being a walk in the park, but it's kind of a, a supermarket <laughs> that's situated in the outdoors. And you weave into the narrative of this book uh, what you call an ethological perspective. Now, uh, if I would just hear that uh, from afar, I would think it's uh, something to do with ethics, but nothing to do with that at all. Uh, ethology, uh, you'll explain it to us in a bit. What exactly is ethology and how did you get the motivation to weave something from the wild into uh, the world of retail? Great question. Thank you. I think the book is what you would call a personal epistemology. It's my view of retail and the world and how retail fits in the world. Ethology, uh, for your listeners, is a study of animal behavior and to study animals in their natural environment. And we know through the years that observation has benefited mankind in, in numerous ways. Those are two key interests, one from a career perspective, which was retail, and the other from the love of nature, love of animals, um, and alhamdulillah, we are gifted in this beautiful country, uh, you know, from desert climate to seas to mountains, and then you've also got, you know, um, uh, the, rugged, uh, the rugged bush terrain, uh, which we can all enjoy. So I tried to bring that together in a narrative that I wanted to share on a professional basis with retailers, uh, and it sort of served my purpose. Uh, somewhere in the book, uh, I talk about the big five as an analogy, and what I do is I categorize retailers, uh, uh, you know, according to certain behaviors from certain animals. Uh, one quick one that comes to mind uh, is that I take the spa group and I link them to a lion. Uh, you know, uh, that's because they're versatile, that's because they're aggressive, that's because you know, they work together as a group um, uh, and their survival instincts are great considering some of the challenges uh, that they have. I also look at uh, behaviors related to technology and I, you know, I link it to like the reality of having to study a gecko and find that, you know, uh, what are the sticking properties of a gecko and I look in the merits of our retail environment, what are the behaviors that we need to impress on to remain where we are? And you look, everybody wants to aspire to different heights, but you know, getting to where you need to be, there's a bit of resilience, there's a bit of tenacity that you need, and all that type of learning, or most of it in this book, uh, comes from observations from the animal world. Uh, if just to give people an, an indication of uh, while you're reading about the retail environment, you would come across sea turtles and orcas and the big five, as uh, Aslam mentioned, Arabian horses, vultures and hyenas, parakeets, uh, rats, giraffes and springboks. Uh, so just, uh, you know, on that, you would, on the one hand, uh, your bread and butter would be uh, the retail environment with an uh, inclination to nature. But I, I would imagine in producing a work like this of academic merit as well, uh, you would have made discoveries of your own in the animal kingdom. 
in in researching characteristics and uh, mannerisms in the animal kingdom. Yes, uh, you know, particularly when I researched, uh, you know, the value of communication. Now, I'll tell you what complexity I was faced with. Uh, When South Africa promulgated that we've got 11 official languages, I mean, a lot of us sat down and thought, that's rather absurd, right? And then the business world came into effect and said, right, the business language would be English. And they put a lot of effort in transferring, uh, you know, English speaking, writing and dialoguing capabilities to the staff uh, that they dealt with. And I then came across uh, the concept of andragogy, uh, which is how do you transfer learning uh, to a mature type of audience, basically adult type of audience, which we do have in a, in a work environment. And then you've got to study, you know, uh, polar bears and understand the challenge that they have where their survival depends on a six-month fattening, six- to seven-month fattening period uh, to actually survive the extreme cold. And if they got cubs at that point in time, there's a lot of grooming that takes place. And to understand uh, that they're basically secluded for half of that learning period. So it's mother and child type of learning. Uh, If you study the uh, river otter, uh, they've got a sense which understands when the currents or the power of the currents improve. Uh, and then the little houses that they build, obviously it's in the, uh, under the riverbeds or on the riverbeds, they've got to protect them from the developing currents. And mum or dad alone cannot do that. So what they do is they go through an intensive 14, 15 day uh, training and grooming period of the, for, of the younger ones to allow them to build this type of, uh, you know, safety barricaded type of home homes in that period that's allowed. There's multiple examples like that. You know, I get excited speaking about it, just talking about uh, the migration of birds. Uh, you know, when uh, and we and, and I bring it down to product selection categories. If a product's not working, migrate away from it. Uh, you know, get a new product and bring it into the business. So there's umpteen, uh, you know, uh, lessons to learn from the animal world, particularly for retailers and for our business people. And and this knowledge, uh, was it just gained like experiential, uh, experientially or did you undergo some sort of formal study into ethology? So ethology is just a concept base. Uh, you know, a lot of us do this naturally and you don't understand what you're doing. Uh, but then somebody comes to you and says, oh, you've got a great understanding of ethology and how that works. So then I take my pen and I write down, I've got to understand what this brother is telling me about ethology. And you'll find it throughout life, you know, when you speak to people, some say you're a psychologist, others say, what what are the qualifications? You know, people in the family that are giving great advice on what medication to use, so they say that's a natural herbalist. We get these unqualified titles. Um, I think it's it's nature-driven, what the personal curiosity is and what your interests are in life. Um, And you find you've developed those skills, they are natural, some of it, uh, they're gifted to you by Allah. And you've got to use them in the process of living. Now, Islam, we uh, have uh, what you've described, uh, you know, a lot of the adaptation and the resilience that was required uh, very much. Not, not It's it's a lived, lived experience right until present, but it's got to do with 
you know, a, a lot has got to do with those uh, initial stages of transition. Uh, but transformation is occurring all the time. Uh, just from your perspective, at this point in time, what would be uh, a kind of broad overview of the main challenges uh, of the South African market at present, retail market? Very good question. Um, so the South African retail market, uh, in the book somewhere I talk about imaging and copying and duplicating. You'll find that they keep a great eye on what the competitor is doing. And generally, because of that uh, parallel type of behavior, you find that the challenges are not very diverse for South African retailers. Um, let me just label a few for your, for your, for your listeners. The first one at the moment, a contemporary challenge for retailers is operational costs. And I want to link that to liquidity uh, and uh, to simplify it as your cash flow. So, you know, the more we spend on operating our business, managing it, that is creating, uh, you know, the right stock, putting the shelves in, opening the doors for you, putting in alarm systems to protect our business. All that are operational costs, you know, taking the stock, unpacking the stock, shelving it, processing it for you. Retailers are infatuated at dropping those costs. Um, and there are two um, areas that we look at, which is business process re-engineering. All right, that is automation, and you know that automation uh, actually leads into digitization. Uh, yes, a lot of it would take a pre-investment, but there are formulas to calculate if the return if the return investment would be lucrative. Then, because South Africa is now part of an international supply market, all right, we're part of this global uh, retail community. We at times do struggle with the product procurement. And that is because bigger buyers like China, the US, and the entire Europe region uh, are sometimes preferred over South Africa. Uh, and that used to be very prominent, uh, uh, prominent in the what we call general merchandise sector, everything that's non-food, right? Uh, in the food sector, we were rather self-sufficient, but lessons of late have indicated uh, you know, that our farmers would prefer to export the priority crop, uh, you know, at a 20 or 30% additional rand gain, uh, rather than disposing it into the local market. So we got to deal with that challenge, right? A procurement. And then in the South African market, uh, particularly the food, uh, and I know your readers may not be interested, but the beverage industry and the liquor industry is highly monopolized. And, you know, you've got to contend with the fight to get your price and to get your to your share. And you sometimes wonder how people promote, you know, beverages and food at a price that's ridiculously appealing. And then you wonder, have they really got the quantities considering that uh, the food market is monopolized? Another uh, learning curve and development area or area of interest for South African retailers is the distribution channel or what we call the supply chain. Getting stock to our businesses from suppliers or if they imported and distributing it to our businesses, that's a big cost uh, in terms of re in, uh, the retail, uh, retail requirement. What leadership is 
doing is actually trying to reduce those costs and by bringing in efficiencies. You know, for example, instead of driving to a place up and down, you try and plan a circular route so you save on fuel time and resources that you may require. We cannot shy away from the fact of the technological advancement with online shopping. Uh, uh, online shopping uh, you know, seven years ago when we were talking about it as a strategic requirement, uh, a lot of leadership would, you know, were in doubt. But now from a convenience point of view and post-COVID, we just know how relevant it is, um, particularly from a consumer perspective and the convenience of having to shop online uh, for a lot of people, particularly, uh, you know, uh, on, on unplanned purchases. Um, whether you're giving a party or whether you run rent short of, you know, a weed eater, uh, a weed eater that you needed uh, to trim your lawn on a Sunday that was unplanned. So those type of things happen. Uh, we haven't got the efficiencies to satisfy you. There are some retailers guaranteeing you 60-minute deliveries. I wish them well. I'm not sure if it really happens all the time, but it's really cumbersome in terms of, you know, uh, creating a short time, short delivery time commitment uh, and having to adhere to it. Then you'll find in the retail environment what we call value-added services. So you... Take yourself 15, 20 years ago. You walked into a little supermarket or whatever was on the shelf you could buy and you walked away. Now you walk into a multinational re corporate retailer. You can buy an airplane ticket. Uh, you can transfer money. Uh, you can charge up your, your airtime on your phone. Uh, you could perhaps buy your electricity or even pay your, your, your light bill. Uh, some retailers got the capability where you can now even, you know, uh, 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 renew your car license. Um, in the international environment, uh, they've expanded that wider than we think. Uh, one need that the South African market really grasped was that a lot of the formal retailers now do have a, a pharmacy or pharmaceutical supplies in their business. Um, you know, in overseas, you could go and have your eyes checked. Uh, you could have your, what they call a lube service, your car having a quick lube service or, you know, a change in your tires, all at the retail environment. Some of our retailers also have what we call fuel stations. And this is all working around the value-added services that you get, give to your customer. Retailers are highly infatuated with that. Indeed, uh, Jazakallah for that uh, detailed uh, description. I just uh, want to pick up on one of the points that you made, and that is about uh, online selling. Uh, in your book, you, you, you do indicate that, obviously, while it's being taken seriously, the uptake has not been that rapid, uh, perhaps compared to other parts of the world, and there's still a kind of inclination uh, for consumers to experience the physical store and uh, the, the trappings and the whatever goes on with the, with the physical score, wh wh why would that be? If you look at an, at an analysis of uh, mall-based presence by country, South Africa features very high uh, in terms of the ratio of malls and population size. So we probably have an excess of the number of malls, shopping malls I'm talking about, in our country uh, uh, compared to most other countries. 
And I also always attributed that to a lifestyle change. Let us not forget that South Africa is still one of the most diverse economies uh, when it comes to segregating people on income level. Um, and, and, and what we lack is a substantial middle income uh, banner of people. So you've got the extremely well-to-do, and then you've got people that are highly poverty-stricken, uh, or edging on the fringe of being uh, classified as lower middle class, right? When the, such people have the opportunity to go and spend, they try and create an experience. Let's say it's a family with little children, etc. So yes, I'm going to buy my essential provisions, but I may have a chance to, you know, treat the kids to an ice cream. I may get a chance to take my partner to a movie. Uh, I may even get the chance to have a manicure if I've got the extra money. Uh, and I've got an assortment of uh, restaurants in the destination that I'm going to, um, you know, which I'm not generally privileged to. And more importantly, I have a variety of retail options, you know, where I could buy my food from one area, I could buy my clothing from another, uh, sorry, from another banner, but collectively I could walk away with my, my essential provisions, have myself entertained, be in a safe, safe environment, uh, be transported there if I can't transport myself easily, uh, and then have an experience even if it be monthly or bi-monthly, uh, that I would not necessarily have in the place that I live. So it is, again, a, um, a, you know, a feather in the cap for South African retailers where uh, malls are specifically uh, advertised on the retail brands that they house. Uh, and you would know that a Woolworths would be in a certain high-level income mall area destination uh, compared to what I call a strip mall or what we call a fringe mall in, in some of the rural areas. Uh, you may not necessarily find a Woolworths uh, in that type of mall. And that is due to customer preferences and customer demands. But again, your question is, uh, that will trump the online experience because it's an outing uh, in a safer environment uh, you know, and it grants the consumer the convenience that he or she requires and the versatility uh, in terms of having a day out experience compared to just, you know, a dreary shopping experience. Now, a question that comes, uh, occurs uh, reading this book is uh, obviously, like you said at the beginning, uh, this is kind of an accolade. Uh, based on your own personal experiences to the kind of transformation uh, and uh, evolution that had to occur in the retail space. But uh, is there not scope to also, uh, you know, criticize or uh, bring, bring to the fore uh, actions of retailers that haven't always been uh, ethical, you know, there's been allegations of monopolistic behavior, anti-competitive behavior, uh, sometimes uh, malls, for instance, that you've just spoken about, have been accused of destroying uh, the local economy or township economy, so issues like that, uh, do you feel... Uh, Perhaps the book was not in, not the place to bring that up or your thoughts on those issues in general? 
So I have uh, on the two areas where, where I discussed, I think particularly in the way we transfer knowledge and the way we try and appease and market to our customers. Let us not forget that, uh, you know, we do reference apartheid and, you know, everyone in a, you know, in the age band between about 45 and about 60, uh, you know, we understand the legacy of apartheid. And, uh, you know, if you were white in the apartheid years, you carry a legacy through, through the democratic years that is hard to change. So laws cannot only change behavior. Uh, laws subscribe what the what the prescribed behavior should be, and individuals sometimes find it difficult uh, to adhere. And we know uh, in the late 90s, post 1994 um, onwards, right to about 2004, uh, various issues of racism. And retail was a white-dominated industry by law. Uh, at that particular point in time, particularly in the metropolitan areas. Um, the white generation at that point in time had an unfair uh, advantage, which they carried through right up to this day, uh, from the access to monopoly, um, you know, the access to product, uh, and they were saved from competition. You know, if you look at our independent trader today, you know, they have done remarkable just to survive from a pre-apartheid to a post-apartheid era. Uh, considering that they are independent, uh, they had challenges with access to capital. Uh, they had access with uh, challenges with access to prime land. They still do because it's occupied by the uh, previous monopolies that existed. You know, prime lands all been taken, and if you want to get land at this particular time, uh, you know, you're going to pay a premium for it uh, because of the demand. That is the one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is that if you are racist, you're inherently racist. And at some point in time, either in language or behavior, it will be exposed. And we were now as retailers, uh, you know, uh, trying to subscribe to a new set of behaviors uh, that would actually fit into a new democratic dispensation. And we struggled. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there were a few resignations and there were a lot of disciplinary inquiries that have taken place because certain population groups struggled. And I must say it was on both areas of the spectrum. You know, um, some people became particular about how you spoke to them, how you addressed them, uh, you know, and there were certain words uh, and from a from a legal perspective that were abolished and we couldn't use, uh, and which was you know seven or eight years prior to that totally accepted acceptable two three years before that in fact, so that transformation had to take place. Uh, but more importantly, was the will of the retail industry to keep satisfying its people. Uh, recently, we all know about uh, the Heike adverts that were found to be uh, dehumanizing. All right. And you've got to be so aware of that, uh, you know, because that could tarnish your brand reputation and have it to, uh, you know, redeem your reputation would require a lot of investment and a lot of time and effort. So South African retailers, particularly corporate retailers, 
put in major efforts in trying to solidify, harmonize, uh, you know, retail, particularly the interface with its customer, its varied customer base, and try to best accommodate that. Just uh, a few minutes to go, I just wanted to uh, ask you the, the elephant in the room in South Africa at the moment. We can't unfortunately uh, avoid this. Uh, the, the water issues, the power issues in South Africa, and also the fallout from the July riots. How is this impacting the way retail is done? The July riots, I would say, was a huge surprise for many retailers. Uh, some retailers still find it difficult to recover from those incidents. Uh, many retailers suffered losses at that point in time, uh, which could not be funded. And due to the nature of the riot, uh, the insurance cover, uh, you know, was not appropriate uh, uh, to sort of... Uh, deal with the financial loss of that period. Now, I'm not just talking about loss of trade. Uh, there were people that lost buildings. There were people that lost stock. We know that uh, arson played a major part in some of the businesses uh, where people lost con complete businesses. A few of the major retailers lost distribution centers. And those of you who work in the distribution field, you'll understand it's not an over overnight uh, uh, recapitalization initiative to replace a distribution center. Uh, so retailers were caught unawares. Yes, we, we are already familiar uh, with demonstrations taking place, blockading of roads, uh, people conglomerating on the outskirts of a town, you know, setting up bonfires, chanting and making their protests heard. Uh, yes, and then we also aware that when you have protest marches, and now importantly when you have blackouts, um, we understand there's a huge organized criminal element uh, that take advantage of those periods. For example, when we have these national marches that are planned, uh, we go on a back foot in terms of our contingency planning and understanding that, yes, the march may not be in the routes that we are taking, but because there won't be transport, because we may not sustain normal trade, because we may not have the, night, the right type of emergency and crisis management support for that period, we become vulnerable uh, to, 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 to criminal syndicates. But again, you know, South African retailers are very, very robust. So what they then do is uh, they go on to a discipline called business continuity planning, uh, which looks at uh, crisis, emergency, and threat management that the businesses are faced. And then they take what they would call the asset protection, maybe their legal, their legal communities and the human resource community, and plan contingencies for those particular events. I say we've lost some great traders, but, you know, due to the physical impact uh, of the July riots and the ongoing protest action that's taking place, the power outages, but more importantly, what you've done to a once confident retailer is subdued that confidence uh, by env environmental issues. 
And I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't want to pull back, um, uh, you know, any words in terms of, uh, you know, do we have a government or are we managing a kleptocracy? Uh, you know, and then there's the whole issue about, uh, in an impoverished community like we have, where large but populations impoverished, uh, is democracy the right type of, um, uh, you know, uh, governance model? A lot of your economists talk about Keynesian. Uh, where, you know, the government should be spending to uplift the community, but then we've got a hole in the bucket with the level of corruption that's taking place in our country. So, yes, from a business perspective, uh, you know, you don't expect the conf business confidence to be relatively high, although businesses, not only retailers, are in conversation with government with regards to, you know, avoiding a blackout and avoiding a dryout. Uh, just a final one for you, uh, uh, Brother Islam, is uh, just to perhaps blow our minds a bit uh, in terms of the technological advancements uh, that South Africa can expect uh, uh, some new innovations at the tills, new innovations within shops, uh, anything you think we can keep our eyes peeled for in the, in the years ahead? Yes. Retailers are very concerned about understanding shopper behavior, consumer behavior, and consumer preferences. Now, in the olden days, you know, we'd have focus groups and talk about a product. A lot of our suppliers actually have their folk to focus groups and talk about the product with people that like or dislike the product and share some information with retailers. But retailers want a certain independence on their customer. Now, Retailers have gone beyond owning a customer and looking at brand loyalty. Uh, brand loyalty is actually an achievement of actually better servicing your customer, better understanding your customer, and making the shopping experience for a customer as convenient as possible. So what, what retailers are now doing is using technology to understand how frequently you visit the business what your shopping behavior is like, what your product preference is like, and trying to communicate with you on a personal basis for what your preferences would be. For example, um, if, uh, you know, uh, Miss or Mrs. A comes in and, and buys every month a four kilogram of pool cleaner, when pool cleaner goes on special, we don't want to tell the whole world. We want to tell those people that buy those pool cleaners on a regular basis and then on a personalized basis, which is 99% through mobile technology. Uh, that is the one area. The other one is we sort of touched on is having to offer you an array of convenient services, i.e., can you come in to a retailer um, and, uh, you know, pay your, pay, pay your municipal bill? Uh, as an example, you know, um, a book a flight uh, that you would require uh, to a local destination or whatever that may be. Could you get a holiday uh, package, um, uh, you know, from a retailer because you are there and you're going to be spending time waiting? Could you have your car washed? Could you have your car serviced? Uh, those are type of, um, uh, uh, you know, um, expansion in value-added services. Technology. I think at the moment we're grounded in having to improve our online services. So there's still a lot of gaps in terms of solidifying a uh, acceptable and more important, a lucrative online business for retailers. 
it does come as an expensive investment and it does require a lot of resources to manage commitments that you're making to the online customer. And there's a lot of technology deployed in terms of getting that aspect of our business right. 99% of it is brand protection because we live in such a highly competitive environment. Um, soon South Africa from an expansion point of view, um, you know, um, uh, we'd, we'd probably reach our ceiling uh, in terms of what local expansion is taking place. A lot of retailers looked at Africa and a lot of international retailers looked at Africa as a gateway, I mean, looked at South Africa as a gateway into Africa. But Africa got its own challenges, it's got its different legislation, um, and it's not always a pleasant experience, particularly in terms of supply chain management. So there again, there will be technology used to understand what's been shipped, how long is it taking to ship, when would it be arrive, can we track it on this route, do we know from a point-to-point -point basis, port-to-port -port basis, where the product is. So there's a lot of technological advancement and investment in supply chain, in marketing, personalized marketing, and in understanding customer behavior. Awesome. It's been great speaking to you and uh, taking us for this walk through your book, which is called A Walk in the Park, a journey of re the journey of retail transformation as experienced by South African retailers. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the availability of the book if people would like to purchase a copy? So uh, the book uh, uh, it used to be on many online platforms. It's, uh, you know, it's sales uptake didn't uh, sustain. Uh, it had a huge sales uptake when I launched it, I think about two years ago. It then seems, seems uh, you know, seems to have weaned down. So I pulled it out of a lot of the online traders. Uh, you know, friends and family and businesses do write to me if they want a copy, particularly our independent uh, retailers. Uh, I'll give you an uh, e email address for to, to request it or a mobile phone. And, you know, we retail the book uh, at 150 rand. Excellent. And um, I was very pleased to hear, and it uh, makes total sense having read through the book, the educational benefit from the book as well that uh, incorporated into certain uh, acad academic curricula as well. Jazakallah khairan, Brother Aslam, for speaking to us and uh, the ideas that you've explored, obviously covered in the book, but uh, with much more flair uh, in terms of uh, the ethological perspective as well that you've uh, highlighted. I was keen to ask you what the hyenas and the vultures in the South African perspective, but we leave uh, that for the reader to explore. Shukran so much for your time and all the best, inshallah. Jazakallah and uh, thank you for this opportunity. Salams to everyone.